Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be reading through this article, Responding to Open Theism in 14 Words. And let's look at our author here. His name is Andrew Wilson. He has uh, some sort of degree in history and theology from Cambridge. Wow, this guy must be super smart. So hopefully his article is just absolutely not nonsense. Hopefully it's not just cringy uh, nonsense takes on, on the issues. Hopefully it's not that because he looks pretty degreed. It would be it'd be pretty sad if we had some more confirmation that degrees don't actually mean anything for intelligence in this article. So let's read this article, Responding to Open Theism in 14 Words. And uh, this guy, um, he's mad at open theism for some reason. He says there's a huge range of books and articles out there, both critiquing it and defending it. Greg Boyd's website is the fount of free resources and defense. Uh, he, he talks about uh, different books against it. Oh, okay. But when theological debates hit the person in the pew, there is a place for keeping things simple. So here are 14 common sense objections to open theism, common sense. He's got some degrees, and so common sense, degreed opinion on open theism, fantastic. I'm gonna try to zoom in, make this text a little bit bigger for us. Number one, his first word is orthodoxy. Even the most sympathetic advocates of open theism admit that it is all but impossible to find in the first 18 centuries in the church history Oh, okay, so his argument here is open theism is hard to find in the first 18 centuries of church history, which is absolutely not the case. If you look at the writings of people like John Calvin, who complained that all these open theists were running around, and in the works of Augustine and his disdain for the little man, the layman, who didn't share his lofty ideas of God, open theism has been the default layman position uh, <laughs> since Christianity's foundation. Even before that, in Judaism, it was the default position. It, it, it took learned scholars of metaphysics to try to change it. And they're, they're the ones whose writings we have today. But it's not unheard of, and we do see it. And we just talked about Justin Martyr. We've uh, talked about people like uh, Ignatius and uh, I think Polycarp we even covered a little bit, and Clement of Rome had open theistic tendencies, and we see it in how they write. So it's not unheard of. It is pretty common, but it's not common in the elite, the, the philosophical, uh, intellectual heavyweights of Christianity, the people who write the stuff down. So moving on, it says, uh, the common open theist response that we have only recently learned how to read the Bible without being skewed by plainism. No, we didn't actually just learn that. <laughs> That's actually been um, the common layman reading since uh, Christ, or before Christ even, for the Old Testament. So this is not, we're, we didn't just now learn not to read the Bible without plainism. The common man has known this for a long time. He says, uh, and the common open response that we've uh, only recently learned how to read the Bible without being skewed by Platonism, founders on the evidence from the decidedly non-Platonistic rabbis, among other things. There are a lot of uh, Platonistic rabbis. Um, <laughs> what's the guy's name? I, I can never say it right. Uh, my anonymies, my, uh, he was incredibly Platonistic, but there were a lot of non-Platonistic rabbis, you see one of the constant criticisms of the Jewish people in the first century by Christians is that Judaism teaches God has a body. This, this is very common, a view that the rabbis did hold, that Judaism held, that's being uh, critiqued there. All right, moving on. One, three, nine. If you type Greg Boyd Psalm into Google, and it immediately suggests 139, 139. It's easy to see why. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. In your book were written, every one of them, the days which were formed for me, when yet there was a none. Despite their best efforts, 
texts like this continue to pose an enormous problem for open theists. So let's let's click on his link, best efforts. All right, so it uh, appears to go to Greg Boyd's response to Psalms 139.16. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, before my daughter opens her mouth, I know what she's going to say. See? I have ungenerated, eternal, non-falsifiable knowledge of all future events. This is the level of logic that we're dealing with when it comes to our very degreed professor man, Andrew Wilson. Brilliant. And so if I know what my daughter's going to say before she says it, that means I know all future events in an exhaustive sense. This is that logic. And you'll you'll see him complain. To, I didn't read this whole article. I kind of just skimmed it. But you'll see this kind of logic in his mind where, where you can make these... <laughs> We'll, we'll go on and we'll, we'll go and see what he does later. He's number number three, babies. If love is not love unless it is freely chosen, which is pretty central for many open theists, then how can babies go to heaven? This is a problem for Arminians as well, of course. Okay, so the logic here seems to be that people have to have love for God in order to go to heaven. There's no other routes. That's the, the, the only route to heaven. There's there's no uh, test in heaven of love. And uh, the babies will never have this ability to freely love. And uh, some some sort of logic like that, which, which has all sorts of very strained assumptions in, in, inside that, uh, inside what he's claiming here. So why can't God bring babies to heaven? even if babies don't have free love for God, maybe they don't have the capacity to love. Why can't he bring it, bring those babies to heaven? Do the open theist claim, our open theist hypocrites, do open theist claim that you must love God. There's no other way to go to heaven. This is, uh, this is it doesn't make sense to me what he's saying here. He's, he's not established anyone who i don't know if he's actually ever interacted with an open theist because has he brought this up to them or is he just going based off of whatever he thinks in his own mind open theist would say without ever having interacted with an open theist uh, next one is exceptions okay so here here's what i was uh thinking about earlier uh let's let's listen to how he deals with this one of the difficulties of engaging with open theism is that whenever a specific example of God knowing a future human decision is under discussion, Pharaoh's hardening, most things foretold by the prophets, Peter's denial, Judas's betrayal, and so on, it can be waved away as an exception. Ah, but that's the one, th that's the one thing that God does know. This makes it look suspiciously like a claim that is immune to being falsified. It's like Tom Wright's comment on Dominican theologians. Shelley Becks first sweeps all the evidence under the carpet, then exclaims, look, no evidence. So he's complaining here that open theists don't have some sort of absolute statement that God knows nothing in the future. So his, his theology has absolute claims. God knows all events in the history, no matter what, no matter how small, uh, to the exact precise a truth value of that event so that it can't be falsified. He can't know something in the future that doesn't come true. So one, one single, one single counterexample shows that that is false because if uh, you claim all cars are red and then I point out to you a blue car, that means your, your huge statement, all cars are red. That's just absolutely false. But if I claim some cars are blue and some cars aren't, and he points out a red car and I say, well, yeah, that fits my claim. This is how he's going to respond. He's going to say, oh, your, your claim is, uh, it's, uh, it's very difficult to falsify now. Look, it's not falsifiable because you didn't like my uh, blue car example over here when you said some cars are red and some are blue and some are whatever color. He's complaining that open theists have, don't, don't adhere to these absolute statements. Let's imagine... Uh, just like I said, um, I know what my daughter is going to say before she says it. So let's, let's imagine I make that claim. 
and I'm trying to prove to this individual that I know all future events in explicit detail uh, to the most minute detail. Right, so all his arguments he's making against open theists would equally be applied back to him in a debate if I have exhaustive knowledge of the future. He, he would try to point to examples of me not knowing something. I could hand wave them like they do. And then when I point to examples of me being right about things in the past over and over again, documented over and over again, uh, throughout the history of this podcast, we have these examples of me accurately predicting and knowing future events. He will he will do this hand waving that he accuses open theists of doing. He'll say, oh, that's the exception. Oh, you didn't actually know that. Well, it's, it's the same type of evidence. Open theists don't believe that God is incompetent. They believe that God knows things just as we can know things about the future. That's not what's in contention. He needs to show that God has exhaustive, unfalsifiable, ungenerated knowledge of all future events. And this, this seems to be a massive problem for him that he has to deal with. Uh, he, he, he doesn't have this one, uh, this, the one evidence defeats your entire entire outlook that open theists have against his position, which makes him mad. Which is funny, which is funny. No, open theists don't claim that God knows absolutely nothing about the future. That's not a claim we make. It's not a claim we should make. That's not a claim that we would use uh, if we're talking about my knowledge of the future. I do know things about the future. And you know that I know things about the future because of my accurate predictions of the future consistently in the past. Yes, that's pretty good evidence that I know things about the future. And God knowing things about the future, pretty good evidence is him predicting those things and those things coming about. God can know things about the future as well. It's You don't have to when you're dealing with theology, despite what these MDs, these people with degrees claim, you don't have to try to put God into some metaphysical system in which it absolutely must work 100% of the time like that in a formulaic sense. I mean, uh, some, something like that, uh, some open theists do adopt metaphysics that are that work in that fashion, such as Neo-Molinus. God knows, has immediate access to the truth value of all propositions and indeterminate propositions, he knows those in, indeterminate values of those propositions. And so one way you could defeat that would be showing God not entertaining something or God not knowing a possible outcome, God not expecting something could be counters to that. But if God just normally functions how we read in the Bible, where, yeah, sometimes people bring things to God's attention, God considers that evidence, and then he acts on that, those those. Those are just common uh, ways of operating that one counterexample is not going to overturn because it's not a metaphysical system. We're not making metaphysical claims about God. God is a person, acts like a person, thinks like a person, behaves like a person. We are made in God's image. God is personal, not a metaphysical construct that uh, this guy would rather have God be. So his complaint, again, is that open theists don't make sweeping, absurd, uh, absolute claims that his system makes, which makes it harder to argue against. But again, if we're trying to prove that I knew the future exhaustively, all his arguments could be turned back against him. He, uh, he, we would show me accurately predicting something, and then he would be like, oh, no, that doesn't count because reasons. Okay, well, I'm glad we... Uh, we got uh, your intellectual PhD take on that. Miracles. As soon as you have a God who can work miracles, you also have a God who could work all sorts of miracles to prevent evil and yet chooses not to. Though, I like the language here. In your system, could God work miracles? You know, his, his name's what, Timothy? Because in his system, or Andrew, his name's Andrew Wilson. Oh, gross. The name's Andrew. That's my baby's name. He's taking my baby's name. So in his system, could God do anything other than what God is eternally fated to do in God's knowledge? I don't think God has volition in your system. So I don't think in your system, God can do miracles. He might be like a secondary agent, but uh, he is as subject to fate as anything else in the world. 
if all future propositions have absolute truth values that God himself cannot overturn. God can't do miracles in your system. Okay, but he says, as soon as you have a God who can work miracles, all right, yes. He says, uh, why doesn't God prevent evil as it arises? Why raise Lazarus and John the Baptist? Why calm one storm and not the other? Why provide manna for Israel and not Sudan? Why strike down Herod and not Hitler? Why destroy all non-Jews in Egypt, but not Auschwitz? If X is evil and God could stop X miraculously, but chooses not to, is he not somehow choosing to allow X? If not, why not? Yeah, I guess everything that happens, you could say God allows to happen. So I'm not sure what point he's trying to get at. He seems to be arguing against unstated uh, philosophical positions of maybe some open theist that he've met, he's met somewhere. And in his mind, I, I don't know... <laughs> I don't know how this is an actual argument for his position because whatever position he takes is worse than this in which all future events have faded outcomes. He wants a mommy God, David writes. Yeah, he does want a mommy God. He wants God controlling all things. Even, even God in his system is controlled to the extent that God doesn't have volition to do other than what God knows he's going to do. God is not an agent with volition in his system. And so somehow fatalism, uh, eternal fatalism of all things is, is somehow better than this or somehow solves this. Whereas an open theism, yeah, sometimes God does blame himself. And we see that happen in the Bible in, in uh, Genesis six, the most famous instant instance in which he looks down on earth, the earth has become wicked, and he regrets his own action in making man. God blames himself. He says, I, you know, these people are this evil. It's my fault. I created him. Then he undo does his creation. So if God's blaming himself, <laughs> um, that, that only works in open theism, that sequence of events. If that's happening, then God is accepting responsibility, which is, you know, and we, we could see that, that a parent who raises a kid and the kid turns out evil, that parent will bear some of that responsibility. Not complete responsibility, not, not the responsibility that you would have in normal Arminianism or Calvinism, but it does bear some responsibility. You bear some responsibility for your children's actions. Uh, substance. It's actually worse than that, he writes, because God is not only choosing not to stop Auschwitz, he is sustaining it. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He provides rain and sunshine for it. He causes the heart of the Obertsgupenfauer to keep beating. Uh, that's probably like Hitler or something like that. He sustains the whole cosmos, including the Zyklon B, by choosing to continue doing these things. God is just implicated in the... Okay. So he's as is he as implicated in the ongoing existence of evil as he would be in a more orthodox view, isn't he? Well, it's it's a lot less because he didn't create the world with these faded events in mind. And so it'd be more like <clears throat> if you're a parent and your kid continues doing evil things and you don't intervene. And that makes sense to some extent for people who have kids. My kids that were fighting the other day, my, this morning, they were doing, I don't know, it wasn't like a real fight, but they're kind of fighting, well, I'll go tell dad on you, stuff like that. And uh, I let it I let it play out. I let it play out. Um, because kids are kids. Uh, hey, Brian, he's popping in here. Uh, kids are kids. Just let them live their life and uh, deal with problems once in a while. Don't always intervene. Uh, these people seem to think that a perfect world is one in which God intervenes at every single moment to micromanage our lives. And that sounds like hell on earth to me. And so um, if you think that's hell, this, this uh, Zyklon B Nazi thing that happened about a hundred years ago, um, yeah, try being micromanaged for all eternity. That also is hell, and it's a more immediate hell for everyone always. So names. If, as is often said, God knows what he is going to do, but not what we are going to do, how did he know centuries advance what the parents of the Persian King Cyrus were going to name their son? Um, 
there's a very interesting part of the Bob Enyard debate with uh, the, the California California radio host guy. Um, What's well, in uh, the narrow path? That guy. I always forget his name. Then I remember it like a minute after any podcast is done. I'm like, oh, I remember that guy's name finally. But uh, he's like, we do have examples of God naming babies in the Bible. Uh, God names Jesus. He says, hey, name him Jesus. And the mother's like, okay, I'll do that. And then we have the example of uh, John the Baptist and his father wasn't quite sold on the name. And so God used active measures to ensure that this baby is going to be named that certain thing. And so if God has to take active measures and coerce people into action to get things done, that doesn't suggest either it's Calvinism, God's not controlling all things, or even the normal Arminian model in which God can kind of look ahead and see these kind of actions and what to do to get whatever to happen. It doesn't seem like that. Instead, it seems like God is reacting in real time trying different things to get his will done. That seems to be more more likely what's going on there. So can God name people? Yeah, we have examples of that. It's not Calvinist. It's not Arminian examples. It's open theist examples. He says, I choose this example because the parent's choice of a name clearly has no bearing whatsoever on the history of redemption, so we cannot put it in a special category of its own. If God knows a human decision as apparently trivial as that, why should we think there are any human decisions he does not know about? Another thing to keep in mind is uh, this is in Deutero-Isaiah. And I think if you were actually reading it, it's pretty obvious this, that this is prophets in the Isaiah tradition. And it's not actually Isaiah himself writing it. It doesn't claim in that section, the Deutero-Isaiah, that Isaiah is actually the one writing and so that's a big assumption as well. He'd be better off using the Daniel example, which looks to be more like a claim that Daniel's actually writing these future predictive actions of nations. But in the Cyrus example, um, God can name babies. That's something God can do. God can make things happen. And we see that happen throughout the Bible. But when we see God acting in the Bible, we always see how he acts. It's not this Calvinistic uh, controlling all things. It's not this looking ahead and uh, doing the, these little chess moves. It's God using real-time information to inform his real-time decisions in order to bring about his the future that he wants brought about. It's open theism we read in the Bible. All right, comfort. <laughs> Again, we are going over four responding to open theism in 14 words by the very degreed Andrew Wilson. Uh, he has degrees in history and theology from Cambridge and uh, the London School of Theology. Apparently a very smart man if degrees have any real correlation with thought process. And remember, he got mad over here. Uh, what, what, which number was that? His exceptions. He got mad over here that open theists don't have an absolute claim about God's knowledge of the future that god either knows everything that's going to happen or knows nothing and he's like oh open theists are so terrible because they don't make absolute claims about this one thing because it makes it harder to argue against very brilliant man all right comfort if you are reformed or or arminian and you face a situation of intense difficulty you can be confronted with the truth or comforted, com confronted. You can be comforted with the truth that God knew this was going to happen. Okay. And has not caught him by surprise. I'm speaking from experience here. Obviously, many can. If you're an open theist, you cannot say that. In fact, you'll probably assume that he has just found out just like you. Oh, okay. Somehow, uh, something far less reassuring. Um, a lot of times, things that happen that are bad aren't a surprise <laughs> david writes i feel better already oh it's it's just the craziest thing that these people are comforted by the fact that all their pain and misery god eternally foresaw and was fated to happen and couldn't have happened any differently than it does does happen oh that is so comforting that just god just sat there and watched the holocaust happen so comforting, in fact. Uh, this, this is this is their idea. This is this is how it works. A lot of people turn to open theism precisely for comfort reasons. 
Uh, Thomas Ord has a lot of books out there, and I've met a lot of Thomas Ord fans over the years, and they love his theology of love because it reassures them and it comforts them and it makes them see God in positive lights. So if, if we're talking just about sheer comfort, I think the amount of converts you're going to get to open theism rather than away from open theism, I think the open theist side is going to provide more comfort to people, just philosophically speaking. Uh, regardless of whether that comfort is founded or not founded, open theism does generally tend to provide more comfort. That's not an argument, though. Mr. Mr. PhD, this is not an argument. That's an argument from consequences, an argument. It's a moralistic fallacy, not a real argument. But it's practical, and uh, a lot of times people argue with practicality or they try to use emotions to sway their audience. So it's it's not a bad strategic move. His next one is providence. Oh, God can't have providence in open theism. Again, faced with suffering or, or opposition, a reformed person will say, some version of what Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil and God meant it for good and the lives should be saved. That life should be saved. And then go on to read a Heidelberg Catechism. An open theist will have to say, no, God didn't mean it for good. In fact, he didn't mean it all. Okay. So I guess this idea is there's this one statement that Joseph says at one point of his life to his brothers in a story which explicitly has God following Joseph around, micromanaging his life to an extent to get Joseph into positions of powers. And we see God's political maneuvering in the story in conjunction with his working through Joseph and this statement that applies to that situation, voila, he says, this is the great thing. Open theists can't then say that uh, about their own lives, uh, and but we reformed people can. So <laughs> you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So like if you have like a bad taco night, like you eat some like tainted food and you're on the toilet for like 10 hours, then you say, oh, yeah, well, someone else meant it for evil. Maybe someone was trying to food poison you or thought it'd be funny to give you those sugar-free jelly beans and then and you're on the toilet for 10 hours. You're like, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And other person's just standing there like, okay, that's, yeah, I guess. Well, whatever you want, whatever you want, buddy. So I don't think... I don't think this phrase should be taken in the sense that it applies to everything always, no matter how minute or irrelevant. Like someone gives you a dollar. It's like, well, God meant this for this certain thing. Reading tea leaves. All these tea leaves fell in a certain pattern because God's micromanaging that. I think that's what he's getting at. He's getting into some sort of Christian mysticism rather than the biblical view of providence in which God is an overseer and God's working to, with us, with us. The, the word synergy is in the Bible. Uh, Calvinists, they always describe themselves as monergists and they get mad at synergists. They came up with these terms, uh, but the term synergism is used in the Bible, which is really funny if, if, if you're going to criticize a term that you make up and define, you should probably make sure that that term's just not in the Bible. Uh, that might that might do you some good. And, and hopefully, hopefully it's not going to be found in a key verse that you use for your own position, the term synergism. But it is. God works with us to, to make things come about. We see that even in cases where God has adversarial agents, like like Jonah. He says, go preach to Nineveh. And Jonah says, uh, how about not? How about I, I'm going to run over this way instead? And he takes off running and God has to chase him down and, and swallow him with a big fish and then spit him up there. It's like, you better be doing this because we could keep doing this all day. You could We could find more animals to swallow you maybe. And uh, so then he's kind of coerced into doing it. God has to actively, God's providence is God actively working in the world to bring about his will, his, his plans in spite of human opposition. This is the story of the Bible. Again, Israel means struggles with God. And the story of the Bible includes major plot element is attempting to build a priest nation out of the descendants of Abraham, which never really materializes, although God tries in multiple ways at multiple times 
and it doesn't materialize, but God keeps working. We see his providence. We see him trying and attempting new things to get this to come about. This is not a picture of God that that is conducive with, this guy seems to be some sort of Calvinist. It's not a, con, a picture of God that's conducive with Calvinism, God attempting and often failing to reach people, or not even standard Arminianism where God knows the truth propositions of all future events. God tries and fails all the time. And so that those types of events have to be regulated to, oh, he's just trying to teach us something through these failed attempts to do anything. That's that's not what we read in the Bible, though. You see how the Bible has to be reread in light of their metaphysics, because the Bible just just face value reading of the Bible doesn't state their things. Agency. This is another word against open theism. If God, in no sense, wills the evil that is brought about by Satan, the Satan, Satan, and or wicked human beings, then how do we make sense of the fact that both God and Satan incited David to take a census. All right. Well, um, in in the Old Testament, well, I'm before reading on. In the Old Testament, you have a character called the Satan. This is not a proper name. This is a title of a position in the divine court, and this individual's goal is to go and do God's will on earth. And so in the Balaam incident, Balaam's donkey is confronted by the Satan, who is a definite messenger from God, teaching God's message and, and doing God's will. And in Job, I, I, he goes on to talk about Job. I'm looking forward to here a little bit. In Job, the Satan's, his tasking is to test the children of men to see if they're good or evil or or how they're going to react, which leads to this interesting story in which God has to figure out within the book of Job whether human beings can serve him for not, whether people can altruistically, without, without motivations, without material motivations, without any gain to themselves, if those people can serve God. This is a thought experiment that God has to go through to understand that, yes, human beings are able to serve God without anything in return. That's what drives us. So the Satan and God are typically, typically the same on the same side within the Bible. So God inciting and David, or God inciting David, and the Satan inciting David. It's the Satan's a messenger or agent of God. He says, or that both God and Satan are said to be behind Job's suffering. Same reason. Because um, being being a very theological guy with a lot of degrees, you, you don't seem to have any basic understanding of what the Bible actually teaches, which, which is pretty common that uh, someone with a lot of degrees aren't going to know the literature. It's degrees are time. When you see someone's degree... Just think this person has spent a lot of time in some sort of formal program. It doesn't, it's not necessarily linked to competency. It's not linked to necessarily intelligence. It's not linked to uh, knowledge of the literature. It's linked to time spent and invested in a certain program that people are uh, paying for. Uh, Rachel Troyer writes, logically person A and person B can both do the same thing, but it doesn't imply that person A and person B always do the same thing. Rachel, I sent you a link so you could jump on and talk if you got a microphone. Let's see. Logically, person A and person B can both do the same thing. Yep. That doesn't imply that person A and person B always do the same thing. That is true. So scrolling down, let's find our next word here. Well, we'll go back to this uh, agency, this conflation of of uh, Joe or the Satan and some adversary of God. He says, or that both God and Satan moved Judas to betray Jesus. All right. So I'd have to see the references there or that Paul's thorn was a messenger. What he didn't. So he puts some references to the Bible and other times he doesn't. He says, or that Paul's thorn was a messenger of Satan. He was given in order to make Paul depend on grace. Um, show your work and need some text there. What do we do with those texts? Let's go to Exodus uh, 5, 
one five five afterwards moses and aaron went and said to pharaoh thus says the lord god of israel let my people go that they may hold a fast or hold a feast to me in the wilderness but pharaoh said who is the lord that i should obey his voice um I'm not sure what he's getting at here he says what do we do with those texts isaiah 10 <laughs> shay williams says hi hey shay all right, so I don't know what point he's making with those texts, and which explicitly attribute actions both to wicked human beings and to God. Yeah, well, um, why why is that a problem? So you you could uh, entice people to do stuff. You could convince people to do stuff. You could um, cause a divorce that both you're doing and the other person's doing. Um, it's not a problem. The Bible uses specific language about kings, which I find very interesting. A lot of these kings of Israel, the text explicitly says that they made Israel to sin. So what is the mechanism? In which way do they make Israel sin? Is it this metaphysical thing where they, they could control these people through mind control? Or is it that they're creating a culture in which people have an incentive structure built up in such a fashion that they're able to choose these and not only able to but enticed to choose this sin that happens is is that pro that's probably more likely what it's talking about when the bible says that certain kings made israel sin and so when we're talking about the bible and how to attribute whose actions to whom the bible just uses like normal ways of speaking normal ways of speaking. The king makes his people sin. That doesn't mean he goes out to everyone's house with a gun and points at them and says, you sin or else I'll shoot you or anything like that. You you could be a less direct agent, just setting up a culture or setting up scenarios in which people are enticed to or can freely sin without any problems so i'm not sure how that's a problem for open theism god often we see god working in the world throughout the bible very minutely um, where he's he's trying to make small things happen which lead to larger events he, he he controls the fate and destiny of nations god is actively working in the world so why is it a problem if god has agency like if god wants the assyrians to invade israel uh, what he does, the Bible describes him whistling to them. And we see that practically play out when Assyrian diplomats visit Israel and then they're shown around the treasure rooms. And so in that way, God can entice a foreign nation to invade. But is he like the direct agent? It seems like he was maneuvering a situation in which which would lead to certain predictable outcomes which then he didn't intervene and stop. The Calvinist God does not know how to delegate, which is absolutely true because in Calvinism, God has no delegation. There's no scene like you'd find in 1 Kings 22 in which God is querying his advisors. God has a court of advisors that we also see in Job, which we already talked about in which the angels and God interact and communicate and bounce ideas off one another for how to rule the state of affairs of course god is god is the ultimate he's the king he's not uh being tossed around by these people he's not a lightweight in the conversation he's the ultimate authority but there's still this scenario in which people can bring uh considerations to god god says who will go out to me and uh, isaiah when isaiah is visiting the throne room he says hey i'll do it right there there's this interaction that we see in the heavenly realm it's not a Calvinistic idea. It's an idea of delegation. It's an idea that God works through agents and with agents, even though God accepts responsibility for those agents' actions, like a good king would. So if I'm a king and I send out an assassin to go kill someone, and the assassin does it, uh, that's me who did it. If David wants to kill Uriah the Hittite, and he does it by strategically retreating in such a way that Uriah is kind of left alone, and then he's killed by people who want to kill him anyways. Guess who's responsible for that? Uh, David is responsible for that. That is a murder created and caused by David, even though David's uh, uh, his his friends didn't do it, his his minions didn't do it, 
they just set up the circumstances where normally murderous people would murder Uriah the Hittite. David is at fault. David did that murder. And he's not particularly powerful. He wasn't even, he wasn't even there when it happened. And so he does retain responsibility. Trinity. If love is necessarily risky, okay, this is the claim of Boyd's central proposition in his Trinitarian warfare theodicity, then how can the Father, Son, and Spirit all love one another? Well, yeah, could the Son have rejected God? That's that's a question. That's a question that we we can't just, just assume the answer is no, God, Jesus could never have rejected the Father in any way. Uh, we we don't see that that's the case. So he gets tempted. Um, he there's there's conversations in which Jesus um, uh, indicates that the crucifixion doesn't have to happen, and so this this Trinity exception. I think what he's doing here is he's using the word Trinity because it's theologically loaded, and uh, it'll make his listeners like, oh, what open theists deny the Trinity something like that. But his real objection is he thinks impeccability is an attribute of God, the Son, the Spirit. And impeccability is the attribute in which not only does God not sin, but God cannot sin. There, There's no, he, he's either physically constrained from sinning or in some versions, God, anything God does is not a sin by definition. So there's no possible way in which he can sin. And so all those are philosophical assumptions that are not found in the Bible. The authors of the Bible treat it as if God can violate people's rights. And so they don't seem to be big on this impeccability doctrine. All right. So our, our next word over here is hell. Fantastic. 14 words, responding to the open theism in 14 words. And we're on hell, which apparently has something to do with open theism. So let's kind of look at that here. Why are advocates of open theism so frequently drawn with either annihilationism? <laughs> okay. Why are advocates of open theism so frequently drawn to either annihilationism or purgatory or both? What open theist believes in purgatory? Okay, um, annihilationism isn't Chris Date like the big leader of um, the whole annihilationism uh, Facebook movement? Isn't he a Calvinist? Isn't he of a Calvinist? And uh, this is like the times where uh, people are like, oh, all these Christians are flat earthers. And like the president of the flat earth society is like an evolutionist atheist. Um, this this seems to be like a guilt by association and it's it's so terrible that they don't understand that their side is strongly affiliated with this guilt by association that they're trying to do and so let's pretend though let's pretend though that open theism does draw people to annihilationism or purgatory or both um so what and so what? What if that is actually the truth of the matter? What if annihilationism or purgatory are or are valid concepts within the Bible? So it's a guilt by association. It's it's kind of like this slippery slope. Like if you don't like these theologies, then this theology over here might in fact be an intermediate theology that moves here. So since we really don't want to be an annihilationist. I think this argument is really funny in the sense that it doesn't doesn't treat people like rational thinkers. Let's say you become an open theist, and as a result, through your intellectual journeys and studying the Bible, that leads you to annihilationism. Isn't that what you you decided? Isn't that isn't that what you think best fits the evidence? Why why would you not go down a intellectual path in studying? just because you might follow the truth wherever the truth leads you. Do, do you think that maybe if you become an open theist, your rationality just flies out the window or something like that? And the ironic part about all this is this guy who we're dealing with here seems to be a Calvinist. Uh, seems to be a Calvinist. Why would God do that to people? Why is God sending, drawing all these open theists to annihilationism, right? Um, he doesn't seem to believe his own theology. He sounds like a Calvinist. He doesn't seem to 
um, care about actual evidence and bring, uh, going to wherever the evidence leads. And a lot of his arguments seem to be these these faulty, faulty things. I'm going to go back to this uh, <laughs> this exceptions one where he, he gets all mad. He gets all mad. He's like open theists. Oh man, these open theists. They don't make absolute statements that we could counter with evidence. Their statements are stuff like God does some things. And so when we point out things that God does and says God does all things, they say that doesn't prove your position over mine. That's actually fits my evidence. So he gets mad that open theists don't say God doesn't know anything in the future. And just uh, th theology. Uh, this, this guy has a doctorate. He has name is Andrew Wilson and he's a teaching pastor even. Oh, so fantastic. He is a pastor and he's got so many degrees and this is, this is what we get from his degrees. I'm so glad his degrees worked to make him clearly an intelligent person. So Paul, our next word is Paul. Now I haven't read through all these later ones, so they're brand new for me. In a number of places, Paul presents a picture of divine and human action that looks very different to open theism, a point which I encountered regularly in my PhD studies. Did you encounter, did you, did you, uh, did you actually um, look into whether what Paul's idea of the divine world was, if there was overlap, if the divine and physical were one and the same, if uh, the spiritual world and material world overlapped, if God searches us to know, if Paul writes that the spirit searches us and communicates those thoughts to God, communicates what the spirit finds to God. Th these are learning actions that we find in Paul. Paul is not a Calvinist. Paul is not a fatalist. He says, uh, I, maybe I'll go to Rome if it's somewhere in your will, God. I'll do that. He is a normal Jew at the time, which believes that God is very actively involved in the world, but the future is not set. The future is not faded, but God is involved in human actions and events. So Paul is the next word against open theism and pixels of light is jumping in here on this uh, fantastic uh, Saturday morning. It says uh, in a number of places, Paul presents a picture of divine and human action that looks very different to open theism, a point which I encounter regularly in my PhD studies. Not only does God know what we will choose to do, he himself somehow is active in what we choose to do. So let's see what he's talking about here. Here's uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That sounds like people have volition, okay. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It sounds like Paul's encouraging his listeners to use their volition to stay strong. Sounds good. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. It sounds like we have volition to choose one for another. And that the future is not faded. And the fact that Paul's telling his listener about this means that he's trying to convince them to take the right path rather than the wrong path. Paul doesn't think the future's faded. Paul thinks that God's activity in this is being with us in times of tribulation and not letting us be pushed past our limits. God is acting as a hedge or a block against, against us being overwhelmed. This is not fatalism. So here's what happens. This individual says, hey, I studied Paul. I got this... Uh, <laughs> PhD and it's a super cool PhD and I'm super smart and here's my evidence that God knows what we will choose and he's active in what we choose and then he points to a text in which God is at being acting as some sort of guide or some type of, of hedge providing protection but the future is open the future is open people are being convinced to choose the right path this this is how these people act and this is this is their evidence it's it's so shaky and it's without merit these people have phds this is what they're teaching in these seminaries these phds mean nothing all right uh first corinthians 15 10. so here's gregory jones uh he's, he's commenting the key difference i noticed about calvinists and open theists is no one starts out as an open theist people conclude it uh, too conclude to it unlike Calvinists, which is like dogma to them. Yeah, that's absolutely true. 
Rachel writes, what does he mean by God acts in advance? Can God be active in advance? How far in advance? Uh, that's a good question because in his theology, all God's actions have to be timeless. But in Paul's theology, God is active in, in the here and now, active in real time, doing things, working all things together is Paul's language for God. God is active in, in current events. <clears throat> this is this is not Calvinism. This is not Arminianism. Paul is an open theist. This guy doesn't see it, though, because he really wants Paul to be a Calvinist or standard Arminian. But he, he thinks that God is controlling our choices, which, again, <clears throat> we talked about the verse in which the kings of Israel make Israel sin. They're not literally doing it in a metaphysical sense. If he found a verse that says that God made the people of Israel sin, he would take it in a completely different way than when the Bible actually writes that the kings of Israel made Israel sin. They're doing it as setting up conditions. They're setting up culture. It's not a metaphysical forcing. It's not taking away people's free will. God doesn't seem to take away people's free will. God, and in fact, in order to get people to do actions, has to do extreme things to them to get them to change. He takes Nebuchadnezzar and he turns him to, into a wild beast for years in order to humble him, in order to actively work on him. It doesn't sound like God's controlling all things. God is fighting against people in the Bible. And the people often reject God's will. Like the lawyers in Luke, the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves. So back to 1 Corinthians 15.10, this is... Uh, this is his proof text that God controls our actions. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay, so God, <laughs> this is Paul talking. And Paul, if um, if for anyone who, um, it's kind of obscure in the Bible, but there's a time where there's Paul, and, and he used to be called Saul, but and he's traveling to persecute Christians, right? And you might not have read this story, but God appears before him, kicks him off the horse, and then converts him to Christianity, and uh, in that way, God directly intervened in his life to turn him into a disciple of Christ. And so, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So maybe, maybe, I, I'm going out on a limb here, maybe that instance might be part of what he's talking about by God's grace. God's direct, tangible, visible interaction in his own personal life. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Oh, yeah, because as Paul writes that he could have rejected God's God's uh, command. He writes in Acts that I was faithful to the command. Paul believed he has volition. Paul did not believe that God was controlling our decisions. Paul believed that he had to go along with and accept his calling, which he did accept. And he, quote unquote, boasts in that, that he did not deny God's calling. Paul is an open theist. His evidence, our friend's evidence here, this Andrew, oh, what's his last name? It starts with a W. I might know his name by the end of this podcast, probably not. Andrew Wilson. Uh, he thinks that Paul talking about his volitional acceptance of God's calls apparently proves Calvinism. And so on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that it was with me. Yeah, so God was with him, uh, protecting him, guiding him, making him immune to poison, things like that. So is this is this determinism? Does this mean he has no volition? Is that what's going on here? Or is it, as Paul writes, that people can accept the calling? People can decide to do things. You need to be warned and, and taught in order to do the right thing. Here's uh, Hamidum Redekel. You... EI, in other words, you understand scripture wrong because you aren't elect. That's a, that's one thing that they like to do. They they like to say that oh, only Calvinists, only Calvinists can read the Bible correctly. And so all our proof texts really mean our theology, even though you might point to how it doesn't actually state our theology. Again, we we talked in the past about Calvinists not having proof texts. Instead, they have talking points, and they go to a verse and they'll pull up the verse and they'll read the verse. And then they will talk for half an hour about what they think the verse means, rather than actually proving that that verse is actually stating the things that they're claiming that the verse proves. They have talking points and not proof texts. So Galatians uh, 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, does does that sound like there's no volition in that? Does he sound like uh, now he's being controlled by this alien entity that's inhabiting his body? Or does it sound like he's choosing to do this? This, this does sound like a choice to me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It sounds like volition. But uh, I'm going to cough here because uh, I've been just talking nonstop. So I'm going to take a drink. So there will be some pause in the audio. The next word here is Lewis. I gave Rachel the link so that Rachel could jump on so I don't have to do all the talking so then I could uh, take the breaks and do the drinks. But she failed me. She left me. I'm putting her on blast. Lewis. So this is the next word against open theists. Oh, man. Yeah, maybe this is the last word. Let's kind of scroll down and take a look. Yeah, looks like it is. So if you can stretch from 14 words to 20, then C.S. Lewis put it best in mere Christianity. Everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. Sometimes a dose of good old-fashioned English common sense is what you need. Okay, so C.S. Lewis said that must mean open theism is false. But it is. it does behoove his argument to grab a popular figure in Christian history and um, put these absurd quotes to them. C.S. Lewis probably guaranteed said this, but C.S. Lewis also said that uh, God cannot love, right? Because God is love, but and that love is is different than our love because he can't love in the same way we love. Uh, God can't love like we do. God God can't love. And so Calvinism and Platonism, Platonistic values and mindset leads people to really bad conclusions. And uh, <clears throat> we shouldn't put too much stock in this. So Rachel writes, everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. But if he knows I'm going to do so-and-so tomorrow, how can I be free to do otherwise? Yeah, so the people in the Bible definitely didn't believe that. I'm reminded of uh, Malachi 3, which is a famous Calvinist proof text, talking point, actually. Not really a proof text, which says, I, the Lord, do not change. Uh, therefore, you're not destroyed. Return to me and I'll return to you. So in their own proof text, God is is responding to people and changing and they want it to be a metaphysical absolute. But in the end of the passage, we find a group of normal Jews at the time. And these are the righteous. These are the God-fearers. And uh, they have a very, very interesting concern. So, so C.S. Lewis writes, everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. These people in Malachi 3 believed that God was going to return and punish the guilty and, and set up his new kingdom. But they were concerned that God would accidentally punish them along with the guilty. Because in their theology, normal Israelite theology at that time, God didn't even know all current events or past events. God didn't have an active log of what is going on in the world. That's how they viewed how they viewed theology. And so how is this rectified in the text, in Malachi 3, at the end of Malachi 3? God writes a new book. In heaven, he's like, okay, you guys think I'm going to accidentally punish you? Okay, so here's what we're going to do to alleviate that fear. We're going to make a new book, and we're going to make it in heaven so we can consult the book when, when we're meriting out, uh, we're divvying out justice. We'll make a new book, and we'll make sure all your names are in this book. And that way, we could cross-reference it when we kill the wicked people to make sure you yourselves are not killed. Do these people in Israel, do they sound anything like how C.S. Lewis describes um, Christians, everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. They don't sound at all like that. Uh, Israel, normal Israelite theology in the Bible was God doesn't even know present events to such an extent that the Bible is replete with biblical authors trying to explain to Israel over and over again that yes, God does see what you're doing and know what you're doing and justice will prevail and you will be punished for your evil acts in secret. And the evildoers who are acting in secret will not escape punishment. 
that was the fight they had to have because zero people, despite what C.S. Lewis uh, st states here, zero people, uh, maybe a few people, uh, but most, most of Israel didn't believe that God had current knowledge of current events and past events. Most of those people we see being interacted with in the Bible. All right, so it says, uh, Rachel says, this is the full quote. Well, here, once again, the difficulty comes from thinking God is progressing along with the timeline like us. The only difference being that he can see ahead and we cannot. But suppose God is outside and above the timeline. In that case, what we call tomorrow is visible to him in just the same way as what we call today. And all days are now for him. It sounds like Augustine. Augustine said, you know, during the baptism, this is in his Confessions chapter 11, I believe, uh, chapter 11, he states that God, when, when he says, this is my beloved son, this is not God talking because, because God can't be in time because talking means a sequence of events. It means one words before another. It means change. And so because God can't change and he's outside of time, God must have eternally uh, delegated or created some sort of creature, maybe like a parrot creature or something, to to say all these words in that order at that specific time, but God himself is above all that and above change. And this is what Platonism, and Augustine was a Platonist. He came from a Platonist tradition. He held those values. He said the Bible was absurd until he read it in light of Platonism. This is, this is how Platonists have to view the Bible. They have to reinterpret stuff. I think it's even C.S. Lewis who states that our prayer does not affect God. Because in their mindset, God cannot be affected from outside sources. God, God has it all under control. He has all knowledge of all future events. And if our prayers swayed God, that's that's an outside external influence that he's changing to accommodate. Prayer is for us. You'll see these quotes everywhere. I've started collecting them as I, I find them. But they say, prayer changes us, not God. This is the sad very tragic part of Christianity, what this Platonistic influence has led us to is not the biblical tradition. Uh, uh, the prayers of the righteous affect affect God. If you pray for something, the the what is it? If if there's a pesky person, lady uh, harassing a judge, how much more will God respond to our prayers? God responds to prayers. My favorite example is God's instant change of mind in which he tells Ezekiel, hey, do all these terrible things. You're going to be laying on your side for like 120 days and lay on your other side for a long time. And you're going to be living in poverty and misery. And then you're going to cook all your food with human poop. And uh, Ezekiel, he doesn't, he does all those other things. He's like, okay, I'll do all those, but not this human poop thing, God. See, I eat kosher. And so Cooking with the, that type of poop is not kosher. Uh, please, let's not do that. And then God responds right away. He says, okay, we'll use cow poop instead. Instant change of mind, instant response to a prayer. It doesn't make sense in Calvinism. doesn't make sense in normal Arminianism. No one in the Bible believed like Lewis believes. No one in the Bible thought God doesn't respond to prayer. No one in the Bible thought God cannot love us like we love each other. No one in the Bible thought... God knows all the things that you and I are going to do tomorrow. We just don't see that data. If that data did exist, it would be in this list. This is a big list from a guy with who's apparently smart because he's got a PhD. A PhD means means you got some intellect, right? They don't just give those to any, any to anybody. Uh, they do they do just give those to anybody. So um, I'm not very impressed, but. Um, a very smart guy. He would have included some sort of evidence if that actually existed in the Bible. And the evidence he does provide, we went through a few of these verses. They just don't say what he claims that they say. Uh, you, you, it's a kind of forced reading out of those. And it's definitely not consistent with other similar phrases applied to man throughout the Bible. Like uh, the kings of Israel made Israel sin. Um, it, it's not a Calvinistic sense that this language is being used. And if you want to say that when it's being used of God, it is being used in the Calvinistic sense, you have to have a little bit more evidence rather than just, just making the claim itself, because it's not evident at the face value of the text. 
The text is not a proof text unless it actually proves what you're claiming it proves. Otherwise, it's just a talking point and a talking point that doesn't do very much for us. So this is our response to this uh, article. Uh, again, the funniest point that he makes is, is that complaining about, about open theists not having uh, absolute statements that can be disproved with one piece of evidence. That's the funniest thing. And uh, this this guy's apparently has a lot of intellect, and this is his complaint that the, a position that God does some things and knows some things in the future can't be disproved with one counterexample. That that's his complaint. Okay, I I guess I guess. But already, I think we're gonna cut off there, and I could actually drink and not uh, keep talking endlessly without any breaks because. Rachel abandoned me. I don't know. Uh, we'll cut off there for today. And uh, hopefully everyone enjoyed this article by PhD Andrew Wilson. Let's see if I'm trying to click on his picture here. It doesn't get bigger. It just stays pretty small. Looks kind of like a, a normal English person from England. That's kind of what he looks like. All righty. I uh, hope everyone has a nice day today.